Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to the Josh Hammer Show. So we're bringing on Liz Wheeler for you soon. She's the host of the Liz Wheeler Show, formerly a host on One American News Network, which is where I got to know Liz. She's quite the young firebrand good friend of mine and can't wait to have a conversation with her for all of you but before then here's what's going on this week so i personally just got back from a trip to hungary hungary of course is a central eastern european state formerly behind the iron curtain during the cold war it's kind of attracted a lot of outsized attention in american conservative circles the past few years the prime minister victor orban is i think widely considered one of the more conservative more aggressively right-wing national leaders in the world. He's been in, back in power for the, since 2010, for the past 11 or 12 years or so. They've got an upcoming election in April. And you know what that means. If you're a conservative, if you are actually wielding power as a conservative, you know the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the kind of Western traditional liberal media outlets are going to tar and feather you as a fascist, authoritarian thug. And, you know, we've heard this for years and years and years now. In fact, come to think of it, in the 2020 presidential debates between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Biden himself actually talked a little about what he thought of as Hungary and Poland going way off the authoritarian deep end. So let's let's roll the tape on that. From Belarus to Poland to uh, to uh, Hungary and the rise of totalitarian regimes in the world. And as well as this president embraces all the thugs in the world. Okay, so that's the narrative, okay? That is the narrative, is that Hungary, Poland, maybe some other states around there. Poland, by the way, I've actually recently been there, too. Um, We actually published a Newsweek, where I'm the opinion editor and where this podcast is hosted, of course. We published an interview with Prime Minister Morawiecki, who I got to interview in Warsaw last May, who, suffice to say, is also not exactly the, the authoritarian thug the media portrays him as. But on this recent trip to Hungary, I actually got to spend some time with Prime Minister Orban. It was kind of a crazy sequence of events. I was literally at the airport in Munich, Germany, in my layover, and I got this email saying, hey, you're going to be in a small group, me and the Prime Minister, in two hours. So landed in Budapest, fled to the airport, changed out of my sweatpants and hoodie into something moderately presentable. And sure enough, there we were two hours later in the Prime Minister's residence. He's nothing like what the media tells you he's like, guys. He is very gregarious, engaging. He is outgoing. He's actually a, he's a very thoughtful man. He spent time studying in Oxford. He apparently, I, I learned this myself, he dedicates one day every week to reading up on substantive, conservative, philosophical reading material. I, I was honestly blown away by that. I really did not know that. And perhaps most relevant for this show his uh, right then and there in that meeting, his kind of political advisor, his top guy, Balaj Orban, no relation, literally used the phrase national conservatism to refer to that particular government's guiding philosophy. So national conservatism, of course, is something that we've discussed on this podcast before. We're probably going to talk about it a little with Liz Wheeler coming up, but kind of it's just this kind of uh, it's a f- form of conservatism that is more ingrained. You know, the listeners of this podcast will kind of hear this in my discussion with Michael Knowles and our leap 
first episode, it's kind of more about cultural and national preservation, more about kind of the sustenance and inheritance of a specific people existing in a specific time and place, border integrity, public religiosity, all of that stuff. So it's quite different than kind of traditional American libertarian conservatism, if you will. And we had a really great meeting there. And, I, you know, what I saw was a man who has kind of done the reading. Um, you know, I, I think Prime Minister Orban gets tarred a lot as an anti-Semite because he's a nationalist. He defends public religiosity. He defends Europe's Christian heritage. Nothing is further from the case. I mean, I, I, I am Jewish, obviously, and I, I toured kind of the Jewish ghetto there with a, with a Jewish friend of mine there on the ground in Budapest, went to probably five, six, seven synagogues. We ate at a kosher restaurant. The synagogues there are actually not guarded by armed guards for the most part, and there's a very simple reason for that. The Jews in Budapest are safer than the Jews in Paris, Brussels, or Berlin for, for, for a very obvious reason, which is that the Hungarian government under Prime Minister Orban has not opened up the national floodgates to Islamic immigration the same way that France, Belgium, Netherlands, and Germany have. It's a very, it's a very straightforward answer. When the media tries to cover this up, they call him an anti-Semitic fascist. Total garbage. But at the end of the day, the kind of the real lesson here, the real lesson that I, I saw on my trip to Hungary, and we're going to tease out here, I, I expect in my conversation with Liz Wheeler, is that a government cannot be avowedly neutral on the core cultural civilizational issues that matter. You ultimately have to put your thumb on the scale in some respect, because at the end of the day, a values-neutral liberal order amounts to a one-way cultural ratchet towards leftism and progressivism. That is what Hungary has figured out. That is what we're trying to kind of get into the American conservative conscience on this very podcast. But on that note, let's take it to a quick commercial break. Stay with us. On the other side, we've got Liz Wheeler, host of The Liz Wheeler Show. Welcome back. We're just thrilled to have on today my good friend, Liz Wheeler, host of The Liz Wheeler Show. Liz, welcome to the program. Josh, thanks so much for having me, and congratulations on this show. It's well-deserved. I was very excited when you told me about it. Well, thank you, my good friend. So Liz and I kind of go back a handful of years now. I used to go on her One American News show quite regularly, so I'm just delighted to finally be able to return the favor in earnest here. So, so you're going to get me back for all the hard questions <laughs> that I ask you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? But one thing that I feel like I was actually thinking about this in kind of the run-up to this recording We've had so many kind of on-air conversations, but we've never kind of really talked about kind of your your origin story, so to speak. So were you kind of like a conservative in the cradle or did you come to your senses a little later in life? What kind of happened there? I am a cradle conservative because it's not as interesting of a story as the people that are like, well, I was a communist and then, you know, I did drugs right. and saw the light. Now I'm conservative. <laughs> no, I, I grew up in a traditional family, a Catholic family, conservative family. And we live we lived conservative principles, right? My parents weren't pol political activists by any stretch, but they voted. They voted Republican and they shared with us who they voted for and why. Um, I would think the, bi the biggest influence was, of course, just the way that we were raised. You know, we we had dinner together as a family every night. We were homeschooled. We went to church. Very, very traditional values. But the, the two things that really cemented conservatism for me as an adult, not just, you know, as a child, you pretty much just do what your parents think. Um, the two things were the fact that my dad is a small business owner. He owns his own store and he always would share with us the finances, the financials of his store, even as children. In fact, I remember him paying me $5 when I was in grade school to help him do the taxes for his business. Wow. And so we, we learned very early on that policy that comes from the federal government isn't just, isn't just 
obscure to the federal government, right? It's not just something you argue about on the airwaves, that it has real world consequences for even us, even our family, that when there was bad financial policy, high taxes, my dad had to give more to the government when he could have been investing that in his store to grow it, which would benefit not only his customers, but his employees, because he'd be able to pay them more, give them better bonuses. It impacted him, which means it impacted us, which means it impacted you know, what we were, what we were able to buy, whether we were on a tighter budget, whether we were able to, you know, get a new wardrobe and and we were raised in upper middle class. So we were not, we were not poor by any stretch, of course. Um, but I'm just saying the idea that government policies impact you in your real life was something that my dad allowed us to be a part of by being part of the financials of his store. And I'm forever grateful for that. So that I think created a foundation for, you know, fiscal conservatism in my mind. That's a little more concrete versus abstract. The second thing is much more personal. The second thing is um, I was a competitive swimmer growing up. And when I was in late high school, I was diagnosed with a cell disease. It's it's similar to an autoimmune disease. And wow. I was, yeah, yeah. It's not something that I talk about because no one cares about other people's health problems. And it's, a, you know, health problems are always the le- your least favorite part of yourself anyway. But for better or for worse, it is what what changed my view on a lot of conserv not changed my view, but cemented my view as an adult in a lot of conservative policies because there's no cure for what I have. There's no, there's no prescribed treatment. It's just, okay, sorry about your luck. And fortunately, my mother specifically was just like, well, I'm not accepting that as an answer. I'm not just going to, you know, let my child waste away. And she you know, studied the science, studied the biochemistry. And, you know, we turned to more alternative, crunchy, you know, I'm vegan. I manage my health problems through alternative methods. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's changed my life. It's allowed me to do what I'm doing now. I can walk, I can, you know, I can, I can speak at length. I can, I can do all of the things that I wouldn't be able to do were my health not managed, were this disease not managed the way that it is. But the, the all of that being said is insurance companies don't cover alternative healthcare treatments. They don't cover supplements. They don't cover, you know, the, anything other than what big pharma churns out. And so I saw firsthand that my parents were able to save my life because my dad had been fiscally responsible, because he had a lot of savings, because he had a lot of investment. He had the freedom and therefore he was able to bestow on me the second chance at life because because the government didn't take it all away from him, didn't tell him that his property was government's first and then dole out to him what they thought he needed, that we were able to have the choice in our free market capitalist healthcare system to turn to alternative things in order to save my life. And so those things from a healthcare perspective and a fiscal in a fiscal perspective and a, in a basic liberty perspective, a property perspective really cemented to me, you know, wow, in a different country with different laws and different understanding of what it means to be free, I wouldn't have the chance that I have today. I mean, here we are like a few years after I first talked to you and I, I've, I've learned so much about you that I, I didn't even know in, in just in the in the past few minutes. First of all, I had no idea you were vegan. I, I recently, someone told me recently that Tom Brady and Giselle live a, um, I think the term that was said to me was a quote unquote plant-based lifestyle. Which, yeah, that's what I do. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I honestly, I had no idea. I bet I mean like um, I, I, maybe it's something I should explore. I don't know. I, it's, it's kind of funny. I kind of have like mixed thoughts on the meat question. You know, my former boss, Ben Shapiro, I've heard him say, talk about this a little bit on air. I think his his basic stance is like, I, I, I currently eat meat, but I can envision a future world in which I find this to be so abhorrent that I do not do so. That, that's, that's kind of how I feel. I'm like open to the possibility of kind of 
weaning myself off of that. But wow, I just had no idea. I do it purely from a health standpoint. Like red meat is incredibly inflammatory. Part of part of my health issue is my body has an inflammation problem. And so I eat the lowest inflammation diet possible, which is which is a plant based diet. Um, I mean, I still find the idea of steak to be delicious. <laughs> I'm not I'm, this is not about animal rights. It's not about ideology. It's purely about what what it does nutrition wise to my body. But yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it makes a huge difference. Sure. No, 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 fair enough. Um, and I don't, on a related note, when I was listening to you there talk about kind of your father's store growing up, I, I kind of thought back to this anecdote that I heard. I'm pretty sure it's about the former Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan. It's possible this anecdote was about Milton Freeman, but I'm pretty sure it was Alan Greenspan. I heard this one anecdote where when he was growing up as kind of a poor Jewish immigrant, and I'm fairly certain he was in New York City. His father used to take him to the ice cream store and just take a huge chunk out of like his ice cream cone, like, you know, like 34 percent <laughs> and then hand it back to like young little Alan and say, that's what that's what the government does to you in taxes. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's true. <laughs> yeah. But let's kind of unpack that a little more then. So you, you clearly grew up in a home where, you know, conservative values were kind of, um, you know, at the dinner table discussed. Or, you know, I'm sure you kind of talked about current events and all of that stuff. So. What what is conservatism to you? Like, what does it mean to be a conservative? What should it mean for the Republican Party to be a conservative political vehicle? Oh, this is Josh, you know, this this is such a loaded question in this day and age, because there is a divergence among Republicans about what it does mean to be conservative and where the where the conservative movement and Republican Party should go. And I have to admit, I have to admit, I, I always try to be very open when my mind is changed on a topic, especially in um in our environment of being so ideological and being so dogmatic about all these issues. And this is an area that I think I'm slowly being red pilled towards, towards national conservatism. I know. And I, I, I come to the dark side, Liz. I know I was waiting for your delighted response to this. (laughs) And what I mean by that is when you analyze, when you analyze what's happened in our country, and I'm not going to be vague about this. I'm going to use two specific examples. When you, when we're talking about critical race theory, or when we're talking about gender, right? When we're talking about you know trans transgender bathrooms or gender dysphoria or whatever in the in the public school system specifically, we conservatives I think have been a little naive the last twenty years when we took at face value this proposition from the left where they told us we just want to separate church and state. We don't want anybody anybody's morals to be legislated, anybody's religion to be legislated. We just want to essentially remove morals to allow anybody to make the choice that they want to make according to their own conscience. It's, It's basically the original definition of what they called tolerance. They just didn't want someone else to be forced to follow your morals. So they wanted you to tolerate their choices. And conservatives it's, it's actually very libertarian. It's not even democratic, but the Democratic Party was the one that pushed this narrative. And Republicans at first were like, OK, yeah, that makes sense. Like, we don't necessarily think that someone should engage in a gay marriage. We don't think that that's moral, but we respect your right to do that. And that that's fine. That's that's my personal standpoint. That's what it is. That's my personal viewpoint. And so I was actually one of the people who said, OK, I, I understand your idea of tolerance, that everyone has to make a decision. It's just like I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic. And, you know, the Christian teaching is that God gives us free will so that we can either choose him or not choose him. We are allowed to not choose him because therefore it gives substance to our choice to choose him. And that kind of applies to the public sphere, too. But this is this was a naive of conservatives as a whole to think that Democrats actually just wanted to remove morality. 
in truth, if you look at their actions, they've been legislating their own version of morality, which you and I, Josh, would describe as immorality or amorality. But they've been legislating their own version of morality in this vacuum they created when conservatives stepped out, stepped out of the out of the moral legislation game, if you will. Um, and this vacuum was created by conservatives being naive. Democrats and liberals stepped into this and they started legislating their own morality. They put critical race theory and curriculum across the country. They started putting radical sex ed, teaching kindergartners in California that they can be transgender, teaching high schoolers about anal sex and bondage. I mean, this this stuff they've put in, they've le been legislating their morality in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, nurses in California can be thrown in jail if they misgender a geriatric patient. Um you know, in abortion clinics, fortunately, this was overturned, but in abortion clinics, not abortion clinics, in crisis pregnancy centers, pro-life pregnancy centers, you would advertise free abortions. They clearly legislate their morality at the state level. And so recently, in the last year or two, seeing some of this come to fruition, I have moved away from the more libertarian jurisprudence, if you will, which says, I don't think government has a right or should have the authority to get involved in any, any, anything, unless they shouldn't regulate anything, unless it's going to violate somebody else's inherent right, their constitutionally protected right. As I said, that's a very libertarian view, but it's one, the definition of liberty, that's, that's closer to what I held. And then recently I thought, no, you know what, that just, that's just not operable in, in our system. It's not operable because the Democrats are going to legislate their amorality. So if they don't, we're just going to be, or if they do that, we are, we as conservatives are relegated to playing defense. It's impossible to win a war. And that's what we are. We're, we're in a battle against Marxism. It's impossible to win a war just playing defense. We have to play offense. The only way to play offense is at the state level, getting ahead of the curve. So Florida is a good example of this, right? They not only banned critical race theory, which is playing defense, they they played offense by saying, and we're not just going to ban critical race theory. We are going to mandate that children in high school are taught that communism is bad, that they're taught the reality of communism. So it's it's I mean, that's legislating morality, right? The same thing with this so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. That's exactly the same thing. Children in school right now, if they want to socially transition, their teachers and school administrators will facilitate that and they will hide it from the students' parents. There are actually provisions in public schools across the country that allow administrators to lie to parents and refuse to give records, health records of the parents' minor children to the parents. So Florida is not just saying, no, you can't do that. They're getting ahead of the curve and saying, you're not even allowed to talk to students about these issues if they have gender dysphoria or if they are if they are exploring different sexual orientations, you're not allowed and you must encourage the student to talk to their parents. And so I've been red pilled in this way, just seeing the reality of the thing that if we just play defense, we're going to lose to the Marxists. We have to play offense. And the way to play offense is on the state level, legislating some sort of morality. I obviously love this, right? I mean, like the way that I, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it's, it, it's so encouraging to hear. I mean, the way that I kind of formulate this, I feel like I've done in some writing here or there, I can't remember precisely which essay, is I, I always say that the left has their version of the true, the good, and the beautiful. It happens to be not true, not good, and not beautiful, but they know exactly what it is that they stand for, and they do not shy away at all from seeking to subjugate us who do not subscribe. What it amounts to is a one-way cultural ratchet where we're just gonna lose. We're just gonna lose more and more slowly. Yeah. So this is, this is amazing stuff, but let's take it to a very quick commercial break. So we're here with my good friend, Liz Wheeler. Stay with us, we'll be right back. So Liz, let's kind of pick it up right where we left off here. So. 
totally agree with you that most of this should be happening at the state level. You know, I'm obviously like a constitutional law guy by background. So I do think a little bit always about kind of federalism, what, may, what maybe the national government can be doing a little bit more. I, I like you, I, I'm still skeptical, certainly, of administrative overreach. Certainly, um, the OSHA vax mandate was something that I thought was abhorrent. I remember watching President Biden's speech on that back in September, like literally just like hair on the back of my neck, kind of standing up stiff. I mean, it, it was really kind of, or it was, it was orders of magnitude more harrowing, frankly, than I thought yeah. anything that even Barack Obama even did in his presidency. And he, he, he had a lot of harrowing speeches. But, you know, you're talking a little bit there about Florida. Talk a little bit more about what you'd like to see at the state level beyond kind of maybe critical race theory to try and kind of actually um, implement our vision of the good, if you will. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you and I have these conversations off the air all the time. All of my constitutional law questions, you're the first one that I turn to. <laughs> I am constantly bombarding you with texts and intricate legal questions. I love it for the record, of course. <laughs> oh, good, because I don't plan to stop. <laughs> but here, here's my question, though. When I say that I'm in the process of being red-pilled on this idea that we need to legislate some kind of morality to play offense, I still do have some concerns. Here's my concern. My concern, the reason that I tend to be more libertarian in my definition of liberty, liberty. that liberty is like government hands off unless someone else is your, your role is specifically to protect other people from their rights being infringed. And that's all. And I actually prefer that view. Right. In a you in, in a perfect world in utopia, I think that's what government's role would be. I don't want government to be legislating morality um, because of this concern. If you have a government official who has the power, who has the authority to make any kind of moral judgment that as soon as you get a politician who doesn't agree with you, a corrupt politician, a nefarious politician, a leftist politician, then they're just going to reverse that. And I don't want the government to have that kind of control over over anything in my life because I don't want a government official who can abuse that power to come in and abuse it. Because we know that when you give a government official the power to abuse, it's not a matter of if he will, it's a matter of when he will. So I guess I guess I, I absolutely will answer your question, but I, I'd like to hear your take too on how do we prevent against that, against this idea that, well, when it's a Republican governor and they legislate communism bad, then as soon as it's a Democrat government, they're going to legislate that communism good. And there's just this back and forth and back and forth that leads to not only a lack of cohesion and confusion, but also abuse. So I honestly don't know that I have like a quick and dirty answer to that, right? I mean, like these are inherently kind of thorny subjects. One thing that, or one example that I can possibly give, because I get asked a lot kind of when I do these feral societies, kind of like legal panels and whatnot, I get asked a lot about my thoughts on the administrative state. And, you know, I'm on the advisory board of this young organization called American Moments, co-founded by my friends Saurabh Sharma and Nick Solheim. And you know, uh, our advisory board, it's like, uh, who else is on? It's like me, Rachel Bovard, uh, J.D. Vance, Terry Schilling, Sagar and Jetty. It's a, it's a good board. And this group basically exists to try to get young, aspiring, basically kind of like future conservative deep staters um, and, and Capitol Hill staffers, to be clear, of course, and policy people in the White House, whatever. But to an extent, what the group exists to do is kind of to try to weaponize government for our ends. And I, I think this is a noble mission to have while I simultaneously believe that we should be nominating, you know, principal jurists 
who read, you know, Article 1, Section 1, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution, all legislative powers here and are vested in the Congress, and they then conclude that the administrative state is effectively bumpkin and should, you know, it, it runs contrary to basic principles of lowercase all Republican self-governance. And I think yeah. a lot of, I think a lot of listeners will hear me say that and they'll say like, well, you're a total hypocrite. And no, it's really not. A, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm trying to kind of constitutionally bring this thing back to closer form to what it once was while simultaneously soberly living in the real world, an empirically driven world as I observe it day to day and saying while we attempt to do A, we should also try to do B. There's also a difference if I if you allow me to interject. Of course, of course. There's a difference between doing this at the at the federal level and doing this at the state level. Yes. And I think that's a really, really critical distinction because at the federal level, there shouldn't. I'm I mean, I'm still very not libertarian. I mean, I would never I would never claim that title for obvious reasons, but I'm still very much libertarian in my definition of liberty when it comes to what the federal government should be doing. I think that the states are, of course, designed to be laboratories of democracy. The states have police powers that the federal government doesn't have. And it's a completely different ballgame to talk totally. about what the federal government has a right to do versus state government. So I'm not in any stretch or any any stretch of the imagination advocating for the federal government to start legislating morality. I would be the, I would be speaking out very strongly against that if that were the case. But state governments, I think it is a little bit different. Yeah. So let's go back to that then. So um, kind of in addition to like the critical race theory stuff, and I think you and I are on the same page there that we should just be, you know, banning this. It's really, it's really not that authoritarian, obviously. It's literally, I mean, a statute could, a statute could be written that, that, that literally reads as simply as follows, right? I mean, no teacher in a public school shall teach that anyone is inferior due to his or her race. I mean, that that's not authoritarian stuff. Like the fact that we would even have to debate this in politics is a sad commentary on our country. This is so obvious. Of course, we should be banning this. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. But because that's such kind of low hanging fruit, let's hold that aside. What are some like other examples of kind of more like um, Nat Connie policy, if you will, kind of more moralistic legislation that you might like to see at this at the state or local level? Yeah, we'll start. I mean, think about all the social issues. All the social issues should be should be taught. I mean, we should we should be taught. We should be teaching basic civics. We should be teaching that our country is that America is the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation in the history of the world. We should be teaching why that is. We should be teaching that Marxism is bad, that communism is bad, that socialism is bad. We should um, we should be teaching we should be teaching that the family unit is good, that marriage between one man and one woman is the definition and always has been the definition in our country of marriage. We should be teaching the practical benefits of marriage, meaning that children are something between 80 and 90 percent less likely to live in poverty when they have a married mother and father, that women are ex just exponentially less likely to live in poverty if they wait until they are married to have a child. I mean, all of these different truths, these are both I mean, the left, of course, will argue that these are religious truths, but these are actually just secular practical truths, too, in how they apply to policy and how they apply to outcomes. We should be we should be encouraging children not to have sex until they're married. We should not be engaging in radical sex ed. We should not be talking about we should not be talking about gender ideology, transgenderism. We should I mean, all of these things that are basic morality, things that are necessary for our country to be prosperous and necessary for freedom necessary for our country to operate the way that it was intended to, as our founding father said, that our country was made for a moral people and no other. Um, these are all the things that I would I would support at a state level. And when I when I say this, I don't mean that I don't mean that this would restrict the freedom of any person to of any person to live their life in counter to these principles or contrary to these principles. What I mean is a lot of the nasty stuff that is manifesting in our country right now was taught to children in public schools. I spoke at the Young America's 
uh, foundation conference, the regional conference this weekend. And one of the most common questions I got after my speech is what can I do when I run into friends who are radically leftist? When I have kids on campus who are transgender or who are Marxist or who are socialists or who don't believe in free speech, how can I change their minds? And I have a very cynical answer to this question. My cynical answer is, well, a lot of those people, you're not going to change their minds because they're already very deeply entrenched, entrenched in that ideology. But what we can do and what we should do is we need to stop creating more of these leftists. We need to make sure that we, especially taxpayer-funded government-run schools, are not churning out another generation of radical leftists, another generation of budding Marxists, of docile little socialists. And so the public, the public school system is, I mean, obviously a huge driver of this. They're, they're the number one institution in our country that radicalizes that radicalizes future voters. And so we should start in public schools. I mean, public schools should look more like what they looked like for our great grandparents, right? Where you started by pledging allegiance to the flag. You were disciplined if you were, if you were loud and disruptive, you were expected to get good grades and teachers would, would tell, they would tattle to your parents. If you misbehaved, you were taught civics, you were taught morality. Um, at Catholic schools, you were you were expected to go to mass on a regular basis. I mean, that's what we should that's what we should be legislating at a state level, in my opinion. I mean, this is obviously all music to my ears. My mother is a third grade public school teacher. She's actually retiring after this year. She's she's been there 21, 22 years her. by now. Um, she still makes her she makes her students stand for the pledge every single day. I mean, like um, I, I actually <laughs> I got in hot water like a week or two ago for saying that a 1943 Supreme Court case called West Virginia versus Barnett was actually wrongly decided where the court kind of in like mealy mouthed fashion kind of said you have like a vague free speech right as a elementary school student, as the case may be in that case to or high school, whatever it is, to actually not stand for the pledge. Um, I, I, I actually think that that case is incorrectly decided. I, I, I don't necessarily think that individual liberty extends that far to public school students. Uh, Clarence Thomas has talked about this, whatever. It's, it's not worth getting into that. But all that's to say, I totally agree with you. The point here is that uh, to take like the Pledge of Allegiance as but one example here, I mean, if our conservative rebuttal to the left's version of the true, the good, and the beautiful, if our response to that does not entail something as basic, as prosaic, as obvious, as saluting to the flag of the country, then what hope do we have left, right? I mean, like, I, so... Right, and when it comes to the Pledge of Allegiance, like, I actually don't even care if there's, like, one student or two students here and there who refuse to stand for the flag. And in fact, they're kind of inconsequential because if we had this, if we had this policy in all of our public schools across the country, it would, the vast majority of the time, be correctly indoctrinating the children in civics and patriotism and love for this country. And there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. There's always going to be children that reject this, but the the vast majority of the time it would be successful. So I almost don't even care about the exceptions there. Like, sure, go sit in the back if you want, whatever. Right. Um, if you don't want to do this, the vast majority of kids will do it. Right. So let's come talk a little bit then, shift the gears slightly, but not too much, about kind of your kind of uh, slow red pilling process as, as it pertains to kind of private corporations in particular. So big tech, obviously, I think gets a lot of conservative attention, right? rightfully so, obviously, right? I mean, the Heritage Foundation, kind of like the most prominent conservative think tank for the past half century, has this new blistering report from Kara Frederick, their big tech staffer, that, that, that calls for a lot of, you know, updating, enforcing antitrust laws, tweaking Section 230. I think the report says that we should be open to common carrier regulation, which Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court last April kind of flagged as one possibility for the future of what big tech regulation might look like. So talk to me about kind of like your evolving thoughts on big tech and maybe actually even kind of what to do about woke capital more generally. Because um, it, it seems to me that like a lot of the new threats we face, obviously government is always 
a threat. Um, you know, I, I, I literally, on a personal level, I keep on my desk at all times rocks from Auschwitz and Treblinka. So I, I'm very familiar with mm. uh, big government and how that can go horribly wrong yeah. here. Ugh. But but it seems like we often today face threats from kind of the big corporate sector and woke capital. So talk a little bit about kind of your evolution on, on those issues. Yeah, this is another issue that I've changed my mind, if you will, on because, in fact, I always I when I tell this story, I always say this is such a huge mea culpa for me because I used to think when conservatives were complaining about censorship on social media, when they were saying, oh, I'm shadow banned on Twitter, a mea culpa, right? I was wrong. It's not just a matter of your content's not good. Big tech is clearly engaging in a censorship game. They now admit it. Um, in addition to the fact that, well, I am experiencing the same thing, that Facebook smacks me with those fake fact checks all the time. They say I'm lacking context or, you know, making a making an argument based on a scientific journal that Fauci doesn't like, you know, things that are obviously true that I say that big tech doesn't like for their various reasons, uh, agenda driven reasons. And, you know, I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on Facebook because they've demonetized me. I have zero reach on Facebook, very little reach on. No kidding. YouTube. Wow. I did not know that. No yeah. Kidding. Yeah. It's it's truly terrible. It's it's real. It's it's been devastating um, to watch this happen. But it's also hammered home, you know, how incorrect I was at the beginning about what this what the problem was and what the solution was. So I didn't I didn't fully recognize the problem at the beginning um, because of that, my prescribed solution was not enough. And then I think a lot of us, it was a, it was a wake up call for a lot of us when we saw what happened with parlor, because I used to say, listen, we don't want to give big government dominion over big tech. If there's anything worse than corrupt, woke, big businessmen, it's corrupt, woke politicians who think that they have authority over us. So I didn't want to jump out of the frying pan and into the fire by encouraging government regulation of big tech. I just encouraged competition. Well, then I saw that with Parler, I mean, I was as shocked as anyone to see, wow, that's actually not a prescription that works because there can't be true. There can't be true competition if someone creates a platform like Parler, but they're reliant on all of this, this apparatus, this infrastructure that's built by the left. Right. So it's not just a matter of creating a website that people like and driving people to your website and competing in that way. You actually are relying on this apparatus. You're relying on Amazon web hosting services, which is run by Jeff Bezos and Amazon, very leftist. You're relying on Apple and Google to get in the Apple store and the Play Store, and they make you go through their ideological checkpoint before you're allowed to pass through. I mean, this this stuff is really is really crazy crazy. It was very eye-opening to me to see that, okay, it's not just a matter of competition on the face, that this apparatus the left has spent decades building is built in a way and for a purpose. And that purpose is to weed out conservatives. It is to discriminate against anyone who doesn't toe the radical leftist ideology. And so with that understanding, with that eye-opening experience, both my own personal experience with being censored and with seeing what happened to Parler, seeing that competition is not just, it's not just a, okay, someone with a lot of capital, please go build a good website. That when, when I realized those two things, when I realized what the problem is and what the solution couldn't be, then that brought me to, okay, well, how do, how do we solve this? And so th this is a, an issue that conservatives, it's hard to articulate for conservatives because it's not a tweetable solution. It's not just you know, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan sucked. He should have he should <laughs> right, have done this better right. and not surrendered to the Taliban. Like that's a tweetable policy position, right? One that we can all grasp. Everyone understands. But the big tech solution is not tweetable because it's multifaceted. It is it's nuanced. And Rachel Bovard, of course, is excellent on this on this topic. She she's done incredible research, and her prescriptions, I think, are probably the best that I've seen. Um, of course, we should we should 
stop using or we should disallow big tech from their immunity from liability per section 230. They're obviously publishers. They're not platforms. They're playing an editorial role. Um, and I understand some of the downsides of of removing section 230, but I'm sorry, big tech doesn't deserve that protection anymore. And I think that they would change their behavior if we removed section 230. We also have it's it's not just monopolies are actually allowed in our country, right? It's not just monopoly. It's when they're predatory monopolies and that it's disallowed. And we should enforce our existing laws against predatory monopolies. That's certainly what big tech is operating as. Look again at Parler. That was a predatory monopoly. They specifically targeted Parler because they didn't want competition. The definition of a predator coming a predatory behavior coming from a, a monopoly. Um, and then the common the common carriage. The common carriage idea. Again, I rejected that a couple of years ago. I thought, oh, I don't want to make big tech a utility. I don't want government in charge of that. It's bad enough to have these utility laws applied to internet service providers um, where you can't get good competition, blah, blah, blah. But now, now I've 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 pretty much changed my mind. I'd say changed my mind about 80% of the way. I'm almost there. I, I like a lot of conservatives, still have questions that I need to work out. This is a project that I'm in the process of working out on behalf of all the people who've done great research on what we should do and what we shouldn't do for big tech. I want to present it in, you know, a complete episode for people like me that came from a standpoint of not wanting big government to be involved in big tech and now realizing that we have to do something and I want to make it palatable. I want to make it understandable. And I'm in the process of answering the concerns that I and a lot of Americans like me have about getting government more involved. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to enforce these laws. We have to make sure that, um, that there is a certain level of fairness in the industry because it's like any other industry, right? Think about the airlines. The airlines are technically a private industry, yet they have all kinds of standards that they have to follow yep. in order to make sure that there's some level of fairness in in this competitive in this competitive industry. And big tech, I think, has proven that maybe they deserve the same. Totally. No, look, it's not just you who are kind of working out your thoughts on this in real time. I mean, you know, Rachel, you mentioned Rachel Bovar. Rachel's a dear friend of mine. We're two of four co-hosts on a different podcast, NatCon Squad. I talked to Rachel usually multiple times a week. So, I mean, I, th I think all of us are kind of thinking at our thoughts in real time on, on this issue and kind of similar issues about the possible kind of intersection of big government and big tech and woke capital and all this stuff here. But it's certainly the playing field is different than it was just a few years ago. I mean, there's obviously just any number of examples. I mean, for me personally, like, I still, like almost a year and a half later now, I cannot get over the fact that the New York Post, the nation's fourth largest newspaper, where I've written, you know, God knows how many columns, was locked out of its own Twitter account for like two and a half, three weeks, right before a deeply consequential election. And it was locked out of its own social media accounts for a story, obviously we're talking here about the Hunter Biden laptop story, that to this day, to this day, has not been disproven. If anything, it has only been more corroborated. It's, it's true. It's freaking true. Of course it's true. I mean, it's it's been corroborated. It's been substantiated. And like, the best that Twitter can, the best that was, what did Jack Dorsey say in front of Congress? Like, oh yeah, that was a mistake. Like, dude, that is not enough. That is not enough. If you have that kind of editorial, editorial control over an, uh, the free press, no less, which is, makes it doubly egregious, I think, that arguably impacted the outcome of the presidential election, I cannot fathom the fact that you're getting immunity from liability um, via Section 230. It's outrageous. It really is nuts, obviously. Um, 
But we're kind of running a little short on on, on time here. Uh, this has been a, just a delightful conversation. Liz, where can uh, where can the listeners find you? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You can go to LizWheelerShow.com. You'll be able to find all the information you need there. Of course, my podcast is available on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, on YouTube, on Rumble. Um, I'm over on Locals. Locals is also, by the way, the answer to the big tech problem. They have their own apparatus. They can't be canceled because they have their own server farms, their own their own uncancelable infrastructure, which is great. So you can go to LizWheelerShow.com slash Locals to join us over there for awesome behind the scenes stuff, extra content and security from censorship and big tech. Also on social media, of course, Liz underscore Wheeler on Twitter. Josh, thanks for having me. This was so great. Happy to finally return the, return the favor a little bit, my <laughs> friend. So look forward to many future conversations. Thanks so much again. Thank you. So very interesting conversation there with my good friend, Liz Wheeler. Learned a lot about her, obviously, for the first time, as I think you heard in that conversation. But I think the most interesting thing that I heard there was that you kind of heard, you know, unfolding in real time, the red pilling, if you will, kind of um, the coming to terms with the reality before us. I don't want coming to terms, maybe a little too strong. This is a deeply, deeply smart person, obviously, but kind of just the evolution in real time of the threat that we are facing from the woke illiberal forces of leftism. The left has taken this thing to DEFCON 1, and they have done so by throwing any semblance of liberal neutrality and throwing it out the window. We saw this time and time again over the past 5, 10 years, especially during the Trump presidency with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination fight obviously being a seminal moment, I think, for a lot of us here. You have to fight back with a positive, assertive vision. The only way to counter the left's dystopian vision of the true, the good, and the beautiful, which again, as we've said on the show, is neither true nor good nor beautiful. The only way to counter that is with our own vision. How many people can we ultimately get on the right, wake up to this possible moment and see what is actually unfolding before us? Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Josh Hammer Show. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.